So Job chapter 19, verse 13. He has put my brothers far from me, and those who knew me are wholly estranged from me. My relatives have failed me, my close friends have forgotten me, the guests in my house and my maidservants count me as a stranger. I've become a foreigner in their eyes. I called him a servant, but he gives me no answer. I must plead with him with, and with my mouth for mercy. My breath is strange to my wife, and I am a stench to the children of my own mother. Even young children despise me. When I rise, they talk against me. All my intimate friends abhor me, and those who I loved turned against me. My bones stick to my skin and to my flesh, and I have escaped by the skin of my teeth. Have mercy on me. Have mercy on me, O you, my friends, for the hand of God has touched me. Why do you, like God, pursue me? Why are you not satisfied with my flesh? Oh, that my words were written. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book. Oh, that with an iron pen and lead, they were engraved in the rock forever. For I know that my Redeemer lives. And at the last, he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh, I shall see God whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. My heart faints within me. If you say, how will we pursue him? And the root of the matter is found in him. Be afraid of the sword. For wrath brings the punishment of the sword. that You may know that there is a judgment. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Father, as we come to you, we know that some in our midst are struggling. Some here come and, and life is fine for the moment. And others come here with, with heaviness of heart and suffering and pain and trials. But we pray that by your word, you would remind them they are not alone. That you are with them, even as we are with them. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, many of you are familiar with the story of Johnny Erickson Tata. Um, who, uh, in a tragic accident, she was diving into some water and she became paralyzed, wheelchair bound. And at age 17, her whole life that she had before her was turned upside down. Um, but a lesser known gal who's in connection is Denise Walters. Now, Johnny recounts that when she ended up uh, in this rehab facility, uh, after the tragic accident, she's a Christian, but trying to make sense of the turmoil. And she's in this room with these other gals. And one of them was Denise Walters. Denise's story is interesting because it, her story begins at age 17 as well. She, she one day was walking up the steps at school and somehow her knees felt a little weak. She didn't know what was going on. She ends up heading home and taking a nap, but when she wakes up, she's not even able to walk. And uh, very quickly, uh, her whole body had become debilitated. And, the, and the, they took some time, but realized she had what was a, a form of rapid onset multiple sclerosis. And Denise ends up in this rehab facility where she is bedridden, and her mom would come every night to the facility and would read the Bible to her, would read the words of Jesus. Now, Johnny says, I was so depressed and lonely, stuck there in this rehab 
facility. But I noticed Denise, she never complained. She loved Jesus and she would use the little bit of strength that she had to talk about the Lord. And Johnny, she sat there wondering, why did this happen to Denise? Why did this happen to me? And as as a Christian, she says, I'm committed to Jesus, but why am I in the wheelchair for the rest of my life? How can God bring any good out of this? And why would God allow this to happen in her life? Over time, she, she grew in her understanding of suffering. She says, she began to realize over time that the suffering was not pointless and frivolous. That like we have been seeing in Job, that God's glory is at stake in your suffering. Johnny said that when Denise finally passed away, it was a slow, agonizing death. But when Denise finally went home to be with the Lord, Johnny said that a friend showed up and opened up the Bible to Luke chapter 15 and put her finger and said, look, do you not see that when one sinner repents, all of heaven is rejoicing? And and then she flips over to Ephesians chapter 3 and she says, do you not see that God's glory is at stake? All of heaven, the rulers and the angels and the principalities are looking down and saying, will we give God glory in the midst of our pain and suffering? And for Johnny, it began to sit in her and recognizing the suffering that she was under was for a much greater purpose. And so too, I think as we're looking at Job here again this, this morning, This loss and this suffering that he's in in this second cycle, it's going to highlight something in particular for you that I want you to see, which is Job's loneliness in this. Here, from the view that we have at the beginning, we know that the heavenly council is with the Lord. And that, as we've said, God's glory is at stake because they're wondering, will Job remain true to Yahweh Even when all the earthly hope is pulled out, when the rug's been pulled out for him, will he remain trusting in the Lord? And just as with uh, Joni and and Job and others, they begin to see a greater purpose to the suffering. And in uh, Johnny Erickson Tata's case, the loneliness of being stuck there in the rehab, I think we'll see as a running theme here for this issue with Job and his loneliness. So to, to divide our time here, I'd like to first look at the misery of being alone. And then second, I would like us to see that God's people are never alone. And so we open with the misery of being alone. I want to remind you of where Job is at. In this moment, Job has lost everything. He began in, as the greatest man of the East. He began with great fame and wealth. All of this preceded him. Recall that he had the perfect number of children, 10 children, seven sons, three daughters, good biblical numbers, and that not only was he a great man, but he was also a good man and that he demonstrated his faith and trust in Yahweh as he acted as a priest before his own family. He would stand before them and God offering up these burnt sacrifices For each of his children on their birthdays, he would go and cover all of them just in case they may have sinned in their hearts and cursed God. And here is a blameless man who fears God and turns away from evil. And when Satan, the accuser, comes before the Lord, he claims, you know what? Job is only righteous for one reason. Job is only righteous because you've blessed him. 
And so he accuses not only Job, but he accuses God saying, if you would just pull back the rug here from Job, he remove this blessing. He's not going to curse you quietly in a corner. No, Job will come out and he will face to face. He's going to curse you. And then what we read is amazingly is Job remains faithful. He loses everything, but he doesn't curse God. He remains faithful. He's confused. He's grieved. He's mourning, but he doesn't give up on the Lord. He says, blessed be the name of the Lord. And so from the opening chapters, it seems rather clear that Satan is lost. That's what it seems like on the outset. But you have to understand, Job now at this point that we begin at, he's been suffering for months, he says, and we still have something like 27 chapters to go. So there's still time for Job to say, enough's enough. I've had it. I'm able to handle it up to this point, but at this point, I'm giving up. And I'm, I'm going to curse God and be done with this. And what we see here is this tension. Will he then turn and curse? And I think the enemy's tactic in this moment is, is to say, okay, he's lost so much. He's lost some of his family. He's lost his position. He's lost his wealth. He's lost his power, his influence. But what if we bring him to the point where he has nobody, no one? What will happen then? You know, in a boxing match, it's interesting, in the first round of a boxing match, the opponents that come out, they have a lot of energy, and they're kind of going back and forth very quickly. But then after they've kind of burnt up that initial energy, the second round comes along, and as they come out, things kind of slow down, and you're waiting for a TKO to happen at this point. And as we're entering what I would call the second round, the second cycle of, of speeches where it goes back and forth between a friend and Job, a friend and Job, things seem to slow down a bit. But at the same time, Job is actually going to deliver a rather tremendous punch. In chapter 19, he's going to deliver something that is incredible for him. And so we're going to spend a little bit quicker time going through chapters 15 through 18 before we get to slow down at chapter 19. So first, let's dip into chapter 15. So if you have your Bibles open, if you get back to chapter 15 with me, we'll be highlighting here as we carry through this. So hear first from Eliphaz in chapter 15, verse 2 through 6, where Job just got done speaking, and Eliphaz's response to him is this. He says, Should a wise man answer with such windy knowledge? And fill his belly with the east wind? Should he argue with unprofitable talk or in words in which he can do no good? But you are doing away with the fear of God and hindering meditation before God. For your iniquity teaches your mouth and you choose the tongue of the crafty. For your own mouth condemns you and not I, your own lips testify against you. So Eliphaz is opening up by saying, saying essentially, look, Job, we finally got you. Sure, couldn't put our finger on some great sin, but here it is. You've spoken and you've spoken, and it's very clear. With your own mouth, these words you're saying, you're sinning. This is, this is it. You speak so arrogantly about your position, it proves that you're in sin. Job, this is why this has all come upon you. Your talk is, is a wind that comes from the belly. Now, that's a poetical way you can connect the dots. A wind that comes from the belly. Job, this is the kind of speech that you are giving forth. 
but Job, and this is what he'll say here in, in chapter 15, you haven't been around since creation. You haven't, you haven't been there when the council of God created all of this, which is somewhat ironic because we were at least let in on the council. We know why Job's in this position. But Eliphaz is highlighting, you, 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 uh, you presume a lot. You weren't there at the beginning of creation. And, he, and he's remain, remains committed to his, his position. He says in verse 9, essentially, Job, what do, you, what do you know that we don't know, Job? We all know how this works. It's very clear. We were gray-haired and, and much older than you and wiser. And, and we know that suffering comes to the wicked. And essentially, that's the argument because it, it seems to be that Job's Friends, his comforters, so, you know, quote-unquote here, are at least a generation older than he is. It's presumed that Job is somewhere in his 30s and his 40s. He's perhaps in his prime. And these men are, are older and wiser and coming and saying, Job, we know how this works. Wickedness comes to those who are evil. And so we know what to think and presume on you. And then come chapters 16 and 17. So, uh, 15, Eliphaz speaks. 16 and 17, Job responds. Now, there is some repetition to what we've seen earlier in these chapters. Uh, for example, verse 7, where Job makes it very clear that he is, he is worn out from his pain. He says, I'm completely and utterly worn out. And then chapter 16, verses 1 through 5, you'll see here where uh, Job replies saying, I've heard many such things. Miserable comforters are you all. Shall windy words have an end? Or what provokes you that you answer? I could also speak as you do. If you were in my place, I could join words together against you and shake my head at you. I could strengthen you with my mouth and the solace of my lips would assage your pain. And so he's, Job is essentially saying here, look, I could talk a bunch of smack like you. I could say these things that would just come against you rather than build you up when you're suffering, but rather tear you down. If we were switched in positions, I could do that. I could belittle you rather than help you. Verse 10, he says, Men have gaped at me with their mouth. They have struck me instantly on the cheek and they massed themselves together against me. You know, he says, look, people have walked by me here. They've been jaw-dropped when they see my condition. When they remember the former Job and they recognize where I'm at now, they, they're completely, their jaws are hitting the floor uh, because they've all come against Job. And then he says something interesting. He says, I, I want the earth to not cover up my blood. This is interesting. Uh, because he doesn't want it to soak in the ground. He wants the travesty of this moment to remain. See, if Job was, I, this is my argument, if Job wasn't really truly in sin, he'd want the ground to soak up his blood. He'd want to shrink back and shrivel back from the reality of what's going on. He wouldn't want his faults to be known. Job, in, in contrast, though, he's saying, I want my blood to remain. I want everybody to see what has happened to me. And I want them to, to be confounded and grieved that a righteous man who is blameless is suffering like this. A, a, a blameless man accused, falsely accused, and now suffering. And then we see that Job is essentially saying he is alone. In his suffering, he is lonely. He has no one. Look at verse 20. My friends scorn me. 
my eye pours out tears to God. The, the only one who can stand with him isn't even on the earth. He, he longs for a, a witness, an advocate, because his own friends who should stand there and be with him in this matter are not with him. And so he longs for an advocate in heaven. Verse 19, he says, Even now, behold, my witness is in heaven, and he who testifies for me is on high. Nobody here on earth is standing up for me. The only one I got left who will is, is up above in, in heaven. And this all leads Job in chapter 17 to, to say, call in the hospice, would you? Start planning a funeral. I'm not long for this world. and At this point, these months have paid their toll. I'm planning on departing from this world. Look at chapter 17, verse 1. He says, my spirit is broken. My days are extinct. The graveyard is ready for me. And what becomes increasingly clear here as the book of Job progresses is that he's looking for someone to come to his aid. He's looking for someone to come and nobody does. No one. Look at verse three in chapter 17. He says, lay down a pledge for me with you. Who is there who will put up security for me? Who will stand for me? Verse six, he has made me, meaning the Lord, he has made me a byword of the people's And I am one before whom men spit. The the, the picture is is ugly. And then at least whoever is left of his family or household will will stand with him, right? I mean, at least we know he has his wife. won't, won't, Won't some stand with him? Not even. Look at verses 13 and 14. He says, If I hope for Sheol as my house, I make my bed in darkness. If I say to the pit, you are my father, and to the worm, you are my mother or my sister. Where then is my hope? Who will see my hope? Will it go down to the bars of Sheol? Shall we descend together into the dust? See, friends, he's saying ultimately, who's my family? Who's left at this point? Nobody except Sheol, the grave, and the worms. These are my family members at this point. These are the ones, I guess, who will stand for me. And now, death and worms are his family. And at this point, we transition to hear from Bildad. And Bildad now will begin to respond to Job. And rather than comfort him, he just again assages his pain with with lemons and salt. Uh, I think chapter 18 functions as a well-crafted sermon in which Bildad is like the preacher who will give this message. And this sermon that Bildad wants to make known to Job is, he says, we're not foolish. We're not mere livestock. We're not dumb and dull. No, we have thinking brains, Job. And therefore, we can see the way the world works. So indeed, if anyone, anyone within the sound of my voice would just simply hear this, then Bildad will highlight what his message is here. See verse 5 of chapter 18. He says, indeed, the light of the wicked is put out and the flame of his, of his fire does not shine. The light is dark in his tent and his lamp above him is put out. So Bildad here, he's going to, he's giving a bit of a, you could say it's a, a, a sermon on hell. And, and he's almost giving this hellfire and brimstone message saying, hell is darkness 
And, and it's a trap that one gets entangled in, and your feet kind of get tangled up into it, and then you fall into it headlong. Uh, look at verse 13 through 15, where he says, It consumes the parts of his skin. The firstborn of death consumes his limbs. He's torn from the tent in which he trusted and is brought to the king of, of terrors. In his tent uh, dwells that which is none of his. Sulfur is scattered over his habitation. And so you, you just kind of get this, this hellfire and brimstone sort of imagery that he's bringing to mind here. Um, this depiction of hell suggesting that being that Job's already got one foot in the grave, that, that he should be aware. Job, you're, you're, kind of, you're about to just fall headlong into this pit of hell. You're about to be entangled in all of this. Then look down at the, the last verse here in verse 21. He says, Surely such are the dwellings of the unrighteous. Such is the place of him who knows not God. Now it's interesting because nowhere is Bildad speaking Job's name right here. But, but he's kind of just saying, I'm not saying anything. I'm, I'm just saying. You, you want to know the truth of it. The, the wicked are going to inherit this, this hell. So I'm not saying anything, Job. I'm, I'm just saying. We all know those kinds of people who tend to speak, you know, somewhat passive aggressively. And here, Bildad uh, speaks this way. And one, one commentator, he says, um, the denial here of grace is so evident. It, it, through each of these friends as they respond, there's just no grace. And, and, and the commentator says, that when, when grace is absent, it always gives way to cruelty. Isn't that true? Where grace is absent, cruelty always sweeps in. And, and this is the case for Job as he hears them speak. Now, before we delve into chapters into chapter 19, I'd like to just briefly highlight chapters 20 and 21, and then we'll come back to 19. So literally, uh, in just a couple sentences here, I'm just summarizing. Chapter 20, where Zophar speaks, he will respond to Job, and he's going to essentially say, um, you're, you're wicked and you're getting what the wicked man deserves. Okay. So it's, it's a repeated message, a repeated theme. Chapter 21, where Job responds, he says, go ahead, mock on, keep up the insults and keep ignoring what I'm trying to communicate to you, which is I'm blameless in this matter. And so it's a repeated, and that brings us to the very end of the cycle. But I want to slow down at chapter 19 with you. We come to what for many is the highlight of this entire book is chapter 19, in which we catch nobody's left with Job. Even those we might suppose that are with him, they're not. So look at chapter 19 first at verses 1 through 4, where we see Job answered and said, How long will you torment me and break me in pieces with words? These ten times you've cast reproach upon me, and are you not ashamed to wrong me? And even if it be true that I have erred, my error remains with myself. That is to say, okay, you guys have looked at my life, and you know my business affairs, you know the way I've lived, and you clearly see that I've not sinned in some great way. So if I have erred, I would be the only one at this point who truly knows it. So I would have to be the one to come out and say, enough's enough. Let me air out my sin and confess and repent. But he says it would have to remain with me. So at this point, I'm telling you, 
There's nothing left. I've, I am who I am. It's what I've been trying to communicate. I have no great sin. And because Job at this point makes it clear just how much he's been abandoned, nobody remains with him. So verses 9 through 12, he highlights, it seems as if the Lord is not with him. The Lord has been against him. Verse 13, his brothers are now estranged from him. Verse 14, his relatives are gone and his friends have forgotten him. Verse 15, even his servants who used to work for him treat him like a stranger. Verse 17, even his own wife now looks at him as though he is a once long forgotten acquaintance. You see that language where he says, my breath is strange to my wife. It's a, it's a poetic way of saying, who are you? I don't even know you anymore. She no longer knows him. And then in verse 19, we see, he says, all my intimate friends abhor me. And those whom I loved have turned against me. Friends, all the people who should be with Job, just go through your mind. All the people who should be with Job in this moment, when he's going through the worst thing that you and I could ever possibly imagine, have abandoned him. Job has nobody. No one left at this point. So church members, can we, can we just agree on something at this point? Can we agree that this is never the way it should be with those who follow the Lord? I, I, I'm not saying that this has never happened, but with our friends and family members if, and those out in the world who don't follow Jesus, when they, when they spurn us or turn away from us, that's to be expected. But within the church body, within the body of Christ, the bride of Christ, may it always be that you and I have each other's back, that we would stand with one another Lifting up one another when we are going through these moments. Um, that if I was in the hospital bed, you would come visit me. That when you're going through a season of depression or loss, that I would be with you. That's my desire for our church. But here the increasing picture, sadly for Job, is one he senses he's just utterly, utterly alone. So while we've opened looking at the misery of being alone, it's so good that we come to the truth that God's people, in the end, were never alone. In just a minute, we're about to read that Job has a redeemer. That's such an important word. Um, do you recall later, centuries later, after this scene with Job, um, there, that word comes up, it's a really important word, where we see it used in the, in the story of, of Ruth and Naomi, in the book of Ruth, remember? That they needed a, a kinsman redeemer. Ruth uh, uh, and Naomi, they're, they're, they're coming back to, to Bethlehem. Um, and as they return, their needs are great. They've both been widowed. And they're wondering who will redeem their situation so that they would have safety and security and provision and we get this wonderful um, tale of Boaz, the kinsman redeemer, who at cost to himself comes in and redeems Naomi and Ruth and brings about through their family line the ultimate redeemer, Jesus Christ. Uh, this idea of a redemption, redeeming, is, is so important. My wife and I, whenever we have a, a bad day or something tragic happens, we always say, well, how can we redeem this? Is there something we can do to like redeem this day? Uh, and, and it is in that sense that this idea of a redeemer, one who is going to, to bring about a restoration, uh, is so important. 
The, the redeemer in your life would be the one where, for example, if you were murdered, your redeemer would show up and make sure that whoever murdered you would receive full justice. If you were widowed, your, your redeemer would be the one who comes in and, and says, um, let me make sure that you're provided for and, and would take you in like Boaz. Uh, if you had some sort of travesty like Job, your Redeemer would come in and sit with you and lift you up. And the, and the word that was used for Redeemer in the book of Ruth is that word Goel. And long before the book of Ruth was written, the first place I think we find in the timeline of Scripture, the word Goel is here in Job chapter 19. That over a millennia before Christ and centuries before Ruth, here we read that Job says, I need a Goel. I need a Redeemer. And he doesn't just wish. He doesn't say, I would like a Redeemer. He says, in faith, I have a Redeemer. Look at 23 through 27. Oh, that my words were written. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book. Oh, that with an iron pen and lead, that they were engraved in the rock forever. For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. My heart faints within me. Oh, that these words would be inscribed in a book forever. You know the irony in this, don't you? They're here in this book right now. And, and the truth is that my grandchildren's grandchildren, they're, they're going to read these, book, these books and they're going to come across these lines. These words will stand forever. And my prayer is that they'll say, I need and want the same Redeemer that Job and my great-grandparents had. This one, Yahweh, Jesus Christ, that they, would, that they would see that and that they would want to stand forever. Friends, th- this morning, I pray that these words don't grow stale in your heart. Th- these can be the words that you got on a poster up on the wall and you read everyone's so I'm, oh, I'm moving on. Let these words sink afresh into your heart here this morning. 25. For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at last he will stand upon the earth. I think Job here, he's saying in these moments, I'm overwhelmed with the thought that in the end, if my body's even destroyed, somehow I don't even know how this will all work out, but I am convinced that I will stand. Somehow my flesh might be destroyed, but I'm going to stand and I will see my Redeemer. I will stand with him face to face. I'm not sure how all this will work out, but he will deliver me from this injustice. The one who will make uh, everything miserable come untrue. The one who will deliver me into his kingdom filled with joy forever. And even though I die, I have a redeemer who won't die. And I will stand with him in the end. And so for Job here to feel so alone, But he still declares there's one who stands with him. Notice again, as we have made clear, that the issue for Job is not necessarily restoration. Job isn't just saying, I I know at the end I'm going to get it all back. 
I know in the end I'll end up with kids and livestock and it'll all be great. No, he says, I know in the end one is going to stand and declare me justified. This is ultimately what's most important for you as a Christian is that you would have one who will stand for you declaring you justified. That was what was whispered about Job at the beginning of the book. And it's the same thing that will be shouted regarding Job from the rooftops. So Christian, if you're here with us this morning and you are suffering, Christian, if you're here with us this morning and you're going through an ongoing trial, I want you to have the hope that Job has, knowing that your suffering will not be in vain, that God is going to redeem every tear, every moment of anxiety or depression, every moment of physical torment and pain. And in the end, I want you to know that you will be justified because of what Christ has done as a sacrifice on on your behalf, taking your place. And I want you, Christian, to also be able to say, at times, even in this fallen world, I can feel alone. But because God is with me, I'm never truly alone. That you, like Job, may say, I have nobody left. But that you may also say, I know that there is one who remains, who does live, who stands in my corner, Jesus, the blameless one. And I long that all the Christians here would not just say in their hearts, I know that a Redeemer lives, but my prayer for us, and I've been praying is, would we all say with conviction, I know that my Redeemer lives? Not just a Redeemer out there, but Jesus Christ, my Redeemer. Would you declare that in your heart here this morning? Can you say this, a settled sense that the suffering that you might be going through has a purpose, that God really is at work in your life, that your Redeemer will vindicate you? Friends, these are the words of Job that have echoed down through time so that Paul even echoes in many senses the the same idea where he says things like, Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Or, Or later the words from Romans chapter 8, But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Jesus Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Friend, if you're here with us this morning and you haven't trusted in the God of Job, in Job's Redeemer, then I am here this morning to to warn you. There is a necessity for you to consider Jesus Christ. The stakes couldn't be higher. Your whole life depends on it. I do want you to know that if evolutionary atheism is true, then we need to recall that if that's the case and you're lucky and you get 90 or 100 years, but at the end of that time is darkness and you're alone. You're like Job, but worse because you have no redeemer and you won't be with your friends or your loved ones or anybody who cares about you. It's lights out. It's game over. You need to understand the loneliness that that is. No, no, friends. The loneliness that Job feels here with the loss of everyone is what life outside of Christ is like on the other side. No friends, no family. But also, 
even in our passage here, even at the end of chapter 19, the last two verses, we get this hint of judgment, don't we? At, at verse 28, he says, If you say, how will we pursue him? At the root of the matter is found in him. Be afraid of the sword, for wrath brings the punishment of the sword, that you may know there is a judgment. See, Job is warning his friends. Here I am warning you that judgment is indeed coming. Christians believe that all the judgment that was coming to us, trust me, it was placed onto our Redeemer, onto Christ. There are people who take, these are the people, the Christians who take all the chips and slide them over to Jesus. And faith, these are the people who are, who are trading in this world and all the, the things that the world wants to offer for the joy of paradise forever with God. And you need to hear the truth that for Christians, this world is as bad as it will ever be for them. And yet for those who reject Christ the Redeemer, it's quite the opposite. This world is as, this is as good as it will ever be. In fact, it'll be much, much worse to come. So friends, Job believes something that you need to believe this morning. For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth, and that after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God. These are the words of confidence and words of life for Job. We do not suffer alone, for we have a Redeemer. Paul found himself in a moment like Job. Paul says, I have a redeemer. And Paul will say, all of this suffering and redemption, it's just like Job, it's for God's glory. Listen to 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 16, where he says, at first, my first defense, no one came to stand by me. All deserted me. May it not be charged against them. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me so that through me, the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth and the Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Friends, Paul has an understanding. He's not speaking about being rescued necessarily from death. He's saying the evil that death could bring. I will be rescued because I have a redeemer. And in the end, my redeemer will rescue me and it will all be for God's glory. What's at stake for Paul? God's glory. Is Paul alone? No. What's at stake for you? God's glory. Are you alone? No. I think we'll end it there. Would you pray with me? Father, we we pray that you would forgive us of our sin. That you would redeem us from the pit. Lord, let it be said of us what was true of Job. That we were upright and, and blameless. And where we faltered, In faith, we trusted in your Son to rescue us and to stand in our stead. And Lord, we long for that day when we are with you face to face. Lord, the last pages of our Bible speak of that so clearly. We will worship in joy, knowing that it was all for your glory, and that no suffering was in vain. No suffering was pointless. 
but it was all to lift up your name and make you known. Give us eyes to see that. Even now we ask. In Jesus' name, amen.